Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you, Rick? I am doing very well, sir. I just got off a long stretch of being on clinical service. And so today is the first day that I am not seeing patients in the hospital. So it's a, it's a great day. And I'm happy to be here on a podcast again. That's awesome. I'm glad you get a little break. Yeah, it'll be nice. I really, really need it right now. And we'll recharge and then go back at it next week. Yeah. And the fall weather is perfect for a break, right? It's just, it's really nice outside. Yeah. I just really don't know what the weather's doing. Wasn't it like 90 degrees and 40 mile an hour winds on Sunday and now it's, you know, 50 or whatever. So we lost 40 degrees in a couple of days, but I'll, I'll take that if we can get rid of the wind. Yeah. And we don't need any of that white stuff flying around just quite yet. <laughs> I'm ready to go skiing, actually. Uh, well, you can go we... other places to go skiing. <laughs> I know, but when I see it here, then it makes it even more real, right? <laughs> I suppose, I suppose. <laughs> so what are we talking about today, Sarah? Well, I think we have a perfect topic for the change of weather moving into fall. Um, and Influenza Vaccination Week is coming up very shortly. So today we have Ms. Robin Williams on. She is the Epidemiology Surveillance Coordinator for the state of Nebraska. Welcome to the show, Robin. Thank you very much. Yeah, We're welcome, so glad Robin. you're here. Yeah, this is great. You know, it's funny you talk about this. I just got an email from my administrator that uh, um, I'm one of the people that has not gotten my flu shot yet. And uh, I will tell you there's a reason for that. Um, it's largely because I've been on service for the last six weeks and I was going to get my flu shot and my COVID shot at the same time. And I actually not too long ago did have COVID. And so I was waiting kind of get closer to the 90 days to get my booster because I'm afraid I'm going to not feel very well after my shot. So I needed to not be on service um, for my shot. So I fully intend to get it this week just for everybody's own edification. So even though I'm on the list, it will be, I will be off the list very soon. Excuses, excuses. Hey, <laughs> uh, we'll touch base in 72 hours and we'll see where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> I usually watch the data to see when I should get my flu vaccine and it is, I have already gotten mine. So yeah, it would, um, it's nice if you could know the data like two weeks ahead of time so you can yep. make sure that you got a little bit of a immune response. But I'm guessing that what you're telling us is that you're already seeing flu cases. We are. I heard on a meeting this morning that flu cases are actually higher this year than they have been at this time in previous years. That's correct. Um, but, you know, COVID had a little bit to do with the numbers of influenza cases with the prevention that was put in place. Prevention prevents other respiratory diseases, flu, COVID, RSV. So when those are not in place as much anymore, you have more disease. That makes total sense. 
So um, in terms of, let's just go back to what, you know, there's not anything that we would say is ever a normal flu year because <laughs> flu and normal should never be two words that you use in the same sentence, right? Um, but if we go back pre-COVID influenza season, you know, typically we think of kind of October through the end of March is kind of what we think of as influenza season. But most of the time, I think in people's heads, they think of kind of January through, you know, through March, early March, maybe is when we typically see cases. But you're saying we're seeing cases now and we're, we're you know, in mid to late October. So how, how much above kind of what pre-COVID normal kind of was are we seeing cases locally um, of influenza? Actually, this is looking to be more like a typical pre-COVID season. So we're coming back to that normal seasonality where we start seeing cases in October and through November and holiday season. That's when things start to pick up when everybody shares the love. <laughs> and then in typically in January, February, we do see our peak. So it's I'm not going to predict anything because that's one thing with influenza is it is unpredictable. And that's what makes it exciting for epidemiologists. But um, it's looking to be a pre-COVID season. And we've also seen both H1N1 and H3N2. So we're looking to see which strain will be circulating most this season. That's still up to be, that's still to be decided by the virus. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> dramatic pause we need. That's we need right. a dramatic pause. <laughs> I can edit that in. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so in terms of, uh, you know, cases that you're seeing now, so are they just trickling in? Or are you starting to see kind of a little bit more activity that, you know, would maybe sell people that were a little bit on the fence of get, when to get the shot? You, you know, usually by Halloween, you want to make sure you have your flu shot. I mean, obviously earlier you could get it. It's not a problem. But um, is it something that, uh, you know, is, is any concerning that we might have an earlier than somewhat normal flu season? There have there has been increases every week since week uh, since the beginning of October, which is when we start our surveillance for influenza, and um, and so that does lead us to believe that more cases are being found than normal at this time of year, um, and also getting your vaccine. It does take two weeks to mount your immunity. So when we see cases starting to show up, you still have that two-week time period before you're fully protected from influenza. Yeah, you mentioned H1N1 and H3N2, um, and those probably aren't new to a lot of our listeners. Those have been a, the predominant influenza viruses since the H1N1 uh, uh, pandemic, you know, what was it, 13, 14 years ago now? Um, any idea when we'll know uh, if the match in the vaccine is close to what's circulating? How many how many cases do you guys need or does the country need before they can determine kind of a match? Um, I'm not sure about the 
the real number, but that usually they usually can do that probably by the end of November. But it also depends on how many specimens are submitted to CDC, which is why our influenza surveillance is really important because that's where the CDC gets those specimens is from all of the states that participate in influenza surveillance. Providers and laboratories and hospitals collect those specimens and send them to our public health laboratory in Nebraska, which in turn sends them to CDC for strain typing and antiviral resistance testing. So influenza surveillance across the nation is important to help the CDC determine what's going on with influenza. How many sites are there in the state that, that submit? We try to have a Sentinel laboratory in every local health department jurisdiction. And then we also have certain Sentinel providers um, in throughout the state. We have 13 right now. Um, we're looking to increase that number. We'd like to have at least one or two Sentinel providers in each local health department jurisdiction. So we're trying to recruit. So our webpage does have that uh, form if anybody is interested in becoming a Sentinel provider. It, it's a volunteer program, but it's very important. So you said the Sentinel provider program is voluntary. Is reporting voluntary as well, or is it required by the state? It is voluntary. It's a surveillance program that we try to find outpatient patients who meet the definition of ILI and we get that information by age group. And that information is important because if our other surveillance systems like our lab report, laboratory reporting and or our emergency department visits aren't matching up with ILI, it means that there's some other respiratory disease. So it's, it's good to track all respiratory diseases. Um, we can and, and get out there to, to do more testing to see what is actually circulating, if it, it's not influenza or RSV or COVID. Yeah, so I mean, when I've looked at it and I've talked to patients in the past, um, you know, I think early in the season, if they have an influenza-like illness, an ILI, especially when we don't know what's circulating, we don't know if it's flu or if it could be something else, I think we treat that a little differently than when we're in the midst of our peak in January when we know that it's influenza, where if it, you know, looks like a duck, it probably is a duck. Um, but I think right now, um, I think it's a great time to, you know, you know, if you are feeling like you might have the influenza to get tested so that we can actually determine these things and it, it will help because if we know so a drug like Tamiflu is resistant if you have certain things or there's a different prevalent, we may have to do something different, right? Definitely. We, we encourage testing at the beginning of the season and at the end of the season. Uh, rapid influenza and RSV tests tend to... Uh, not be as effective at the beginning of the season um but and so we do in encourage pcr testing or a more sensitive test to determine if it really is influenza at the beginning of the season and that's another reason why we encourage people to send samples to the public health lab because we can do a more sensitive test to see if it actually is influenza or just a false positive 
So I think COVID's been on everybody's mind for so long. I, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, well, I'm not feeling well, it must be COVID. But are there tests out there that can test for COVID and influenza at the same time? Yes, there's there's tests that can test for flu, RSV, and COVID. Um, the test tests for influenza A and influenza B, which we haven't mentioned much. We have seen a PCR, more sensitive test, confirmed B as well. So we have all of the flus around right now. Um, the party. Yeah, flu party. <laughs> Run away! Run away! <laughs> Wash your hands. That's that's the always that's the, that's our dirty drinks uh, joke, Robin. Is that any time that you need to stall or or pause something or whatever is always a good time to do hand hygiene. You know, it gives you that time, but it also protects you from all these viruses and horrible things that we talk about. So true, so true, and and cough etiquette also. Cover your cough. Absolutely. Now, I know spray the, the people. I know the CDC has a relaxed source control a little bit in healthcare facilities, but for me personally, I still wear a mask when I'm on campus and around other people. So I don't know, not only for COVID, but like you said, for influenza and everything else that's going on. Well, in other countries prior to COVID, people wear masks all the time. It is a standard infection prevention method. Yep. So um, in terms of historical past, again, pre-COVID, um, why do we really care about influenza and influenza prevention? What impact has it had kind of locally on our state, you know, in terms of, do you have numbers on like cases, hospitalizations, deaths, anything like that that you can share? Um, we do have surveillance that goes back to 2003 which is when we kind of solidified influenza season uh surveillance and uh you know there's there's certain there's data that shows years that the vaccine wasn't matched and so it was a more severe season more we tracked hospitalizations and deaths then then came the h1n1 pandemic and part of our surveillance is to be able to find those novel influenzas that might pop up. Um, in uh, We haven't had deaths or too many hospitalizations due to COVID the last few years, but um, there have been, we, we do track deaths. Unfortunately, influenza adult deaths are not reportable to the state, but pediatric influenza deaths are reportable. So we do get all of those reported to us. Uh, we have very few of those, thankfully. Um, but we have had uh, one or two every season. And then typically we see around, oh, maybe 40 to 50 influenza adult tests per year in Nebraska. But again, we might not be getting all of those reported to us. We have a surveillance system where infection preventionists report ILI to us. Um, the hospital 
influenza admissions, influenza-like illness admissions, and those are by age group too. And it typically, that typically shows the age group 65 and older are the ones that are most impacted by by influenza and hospitalized. Um, We do also track outbreaks of influenza and other respiratory diseases. And uh, so we have that information available to us every year. And so we can determine the severity of a season based on those surveillance systems and um, try to find anything new that's coming up. How long have you been in your position monitoring the respiratory illnesses? I have been here monitoring influenza and other respiratory diseases since 2003. So I was the initiator, along with our state epidemiologists at the time, of influenza surveillance. Uh, So I've been here for quite a while, and influenza has turned into the surveillance has blossomed into many different um, systems that we can use to identify flu and other respiratory diseases. Uh, We also track RSV and other respiratory diseases like human metanumavirus, parainfluenza, respiratory adenovirus. We have all of that data now, and it's actually in our our flu report our respiratory report because we can't only call it a flu report anymore because we do have all the other respiratory diseases in it now. So it's our influenza and other respiratory diseases report. And that data is provided to the public on our website each each week. It's very interesting. I bet it is. I'm going to go look it up. You guys probably don't want to hear this, but in 2003, I was graduating high school. Yeah, we don't want to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're doing yeah, good things though robin you're doing great things <laughs> so you mentioned a couple of things that you're on there um you know what's going on with rsv it continues to increase uh it started early this year rsv last year was happened very unseasonably it happened in the summer that's not normal for rsv and Uh, we were concerned what we would see this year. It did not start as early as it did last year, but it started earlier than normal and it is still increasing. So people still need to be aware that it is out there and protect their little ones from that. Yeah, little ones and elderly and immune compromised can certainly be impacted significantly by RSV. It's crazy. I, I don't know if it was um, some something because of source control and when, when society opened back up or something different with COVID, but the RSV has been really off kilter the last couple of years. It's a, I mean, we didn't have any influenza, but you know, we think that was because of source control and everything else that you talked about, but we didn't even have a, you know, an off season influenza like we did with RSV. It's really strange. Definitely. Yeah, we don't know what these respiratory diseases are going to do from one year to the other. We always have to be prepared for what, when they show up. Yeah. 
One of the things that's interesting about influenza in the northern hemisphere is that we get a little preview with the southern hemisphere. Um, so it's, you know, because their, um, you know, their winter is our summer. And so they, they get in a little bit of a head start on influenza season than what we have. And so we use that a lot to predict kind of what viruses might be circulating here and, and work on our vaccines, as well as gives us an idea of uh, how severe our season might be. I, I don't know how often it you know matches or is a mismatch, but certainly it looked like it came back in the Southern hemisphere this year. Yes, and the circulating strain was the H3N2 virus. And it did seem to be a little bit more severe than uh, the previous few seasons. So if we look at that and use that as a predictor, um, we should be kind of concerned about this season. So when they are looking at what strains to include in the vaccine, do they look at past years or do they look at the Southern hemisphere and what happened there? How do you guys know how that's determined? They use the specimens that we submit to them and the specimens that are submitted from Southern hemisphere, late season, uh, Northern hemisphere, early season. And then they go test all of that, those, those specimens and try to figure out what is best. Um, it's always kind of a hope that it'll be good because influenza can change so quickly. And um, you hope it doesn't change too much, but uh, they do the best that they can to create that vaccine. Yeah, it's a panel of expert opinion based on that data that she's talking about. And so they, they do the best they can to try to mix, uh, match it up. But if there's a little bit of antigenic drift, it's usually not too bad. But if we have an antigenic shift, then there may not be any protection from the vaccine. And, you know, and sometimes even humans may not even have much protective antibodies if it's a complete shift. So that's what can happen when we have global pandemics and we get into serious trouble. And that's what, um, you know, honestly, people that do uh, uh, these epidemic work and, and everything else have been preparing for, right, was an, an antigenic shift with influenza. And then we just ended up with COVID. Instead. Yep. <laughs> we still Surprise. were able to utilize some of our plans a little bit, but, um, you know, preparing for a respiratory virus, a respiratory virus is a respiratory virus. So it was helpful a little bit to be prepared for that. But we are still on the lookout for that pandemic influenza. Um, we never let our guard down in expecting that, especially with the way that uh, influenza can potentially mix with other influenza types in swine or avian. And if you have a person with human influenza and a swine with a swine influenza and you get those people together you could potentially make a new strain of influenza and that's what we're trying to prevent um, especially during the summertime our messages during agriculture fairs is to really prevent that mixture of the influenzas so that's a that's another big project that we work on is a youth and agriculture project that um educates youth about 
uh, proper prevention of influenza and other zoonotic diseases uh, because they work very closely with their animals and it can they can get those diseases as well. I'm just like imagining a, a mutant virus. We need pictures. We need like some artistic pictures of a mutant virus that's that's combined from avian or swine and, and human influenza. <laughs> well, that's what we got in 2009. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting. So you, you um, you know, so people have probably heard there, you know, with the the strain of avian influenza that's been present around here, and I think there was a bird at the zoo that recently uh, died with uh, uh, avian influenza. So, how, um, you know, obviously you guys are checking for these things, and, and you know, and and many of them don't have the ability to replicate in humans. But what's surveillance is important on checking for these things and finding something that's like different and off the cuff, right? Yes. If if we have a report of a bird with influenza, we do monitor any people who may have had contact with that bird just to check to make sure that they don't have any symptoms. And if they happen to have symptoms, we get them tested right away. Very interesting. And, you know, one thing you mentioned, you're working with students and everybody else in the United States. We have to remember that conditions in the United States are different than they are in large portions of the world where, um, you know, humans and birds and uh, swine may intermingle a lot more than we do in the United States. And so there's definitely potential for a pandemic influenza to emerge. Yes, and that's why we watch the WHO site very closely and see what all is circulating and keep up to date with any sort of new data that may come out so we can be prepared. It'd be kind of fun to be a germ hunter and go search those things out. <laughs> well, you can go work for WHO and you get to go all <laughs> over the world searching for flu. Rick Starlin, germ hunter. <laughs> there, could be a, there could be a season at least on Netflix for that, I think. There could. <laughs> I would watch it. You just have to go full PPE because you never know what you're going to find. It might have an audience viewership of 10, but you know, whatever. <laughs> I'd watch it. <laughs> you got two. <laughs> we're 20% we're there. <laughs> I'm sure producers will be calling me tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so, Robin, did you? always know you wanted to be in epidemiology or was that something that you kind of fell into? Well, I, I started out as health promotion, you know, um, community health education, you know, started with the clinical nurse doctor path, but then I was like, oh, population health is pretty cool. So went to community health and then I got this job during the West Nile virus, uh, mm -hmm. Uh, outbreak in 2003 and I was I was hooked that that was it I'm I became an epidemiologist and that's where I am and that's where I'll most likely always be data is super fun um, finding the problems and trying to help people solve them so you know I am kind of a germ hunter in actuality. So we go find the diseases and track them down and 
prevent them from happening to others. So epidemiology is super fun. What um what kind of training did you do in terms of that? Did, did you do it specifically through the health department or did you do some things on your own? Well, uh, you know, learning from experience is a great teacher, but I also got my master's in public health. Um, at the time I got my master's, UNMC didn't have the epidemiology program. So I, you know, I got health promotion, but uh, the state of Nebraska has a great epidemiology team where we learn from each other. And UNMC also has great uh, people to help us with epidemiology and other data science projects that we work on. So um, we have a great team and we learn lots. There's always something new to learn. So we don't stop doing that. What, um, in terms of uh, MPH, how, how, what is that like? How, how long is the school and, and those kinds of things? Is it something that people could do um, while they're working, et cetera, or is it a? a... I worked full-time and did my master's part-time but if you go full time, you can get it done in uh, a couple of years. Yeah, and definitely and they, an area of need, right? Yes, we need epidemiologists, especially now that people know what they are. COVID has brought the epidemiology profession to the forefront, and everybody wants to wants to be one or wants to know one, or and so we can't get enough people into our jobs now, and every and. You know, states are realizing how important they are to to their public health departments and trying to find ways to create more positions. So we need to create more epidemiologists to fill those positions. Yeah, it's funny. When I was a second, third year med student is when the show ER came out on TV. And so my a large portion of my class wanted to be an ER doc because it looked, you know, tremendous. It looked great. I mean, and I, it was a great show and, you know, but uh, it's uh, how, it's funny how things that are going on influence. And I hope that COVID doesn't scare people away from, uh, you know, public health and infectious disease and, and pandemic preparedness and everything else and actually gets people interested in this. So, you know, we got to do better next time. Yeah, if people want to help with this kind of situation in the future, this would be a great opportunity for them. And there's always going to be a new disease on the forefront. There's always going to be something. And even like a pop-up of an older disease like Ebola that has shown up again. So How about polio? And polio. That is, that is scary. And we are watching that very closely. I bet they need to start putting in movies though you know like the epidemiologist is always the one that nobody listens to at the beginning of the movie <laughs> so i think they need to make a movie where like they talk to the epidemiologist and then do what they say and it's a happy ending well contagion i think did a pretty good job of utilizing the epidemiologist's because they had an epidemiology intelligence officer, an EIS officer, which m most states have from CDC. We have an uh, EIS officer every year that comes and works for us from CDC. And so they mentioned them in that movie. And we actually took a field trip as a team and went to the movie and watched that together. It was really fun. We were like pointing out what was wrong and what was right the whole time. I'm sure the other guests were like, please be quiet. 
<laughs> it was a good movie. I thought I was sad when Kate Winslet's EIS character died, though. That was yeah. sad. I hope I, 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 I didn't spoil that spoiler. for anybody. It's it's an old movie now, so <laughs> I'm not even sure they had iPhones yet. Mm, no, probably still doing paper report forms. <laughs> <laughs> So if you haven't seen it yet, sorry, but it's old. <laughs> as as Sarah pointed out, she might have still been in high school. Yeah. There's that. <laughs> Another question just on uh, on reporting things. Um, as far as clinicians' responsibility for reporting things to public health, that's usually taken care of nowadays by the lab, and it typically happens. So, you know, a physician, you wouldn't be expected to call somebody up at the health department to report something most cases, would they? No. Influenza is only reportable if a facility participates in electronic lab reporting. So that's both with influenza and RSV. So if somebody so, has a positive home test, you know, or, you know, or in office rapid test or something like that, then that's just something that's not reported and we just, you know, deal with it. Nope. Those aren't reportable. But if a clinic or a provider happens to see multiple patients coming in from a certain age group or a facility, that could potentially be an outbreak situation. So that would be reportable to the local health department or to the state health department. So watching for those kinds of situations is is very important for providers out there. So kind of a syndromic surveillance, if you're noticing a bunch of kids coming in from the same elementary school that have IOI, that might be something that was good to call. Yes. What are you defining an outbreak as for this reporting? An outbreak, well, above normalcy for the providers. You know, if they see a little cluster of uh, kiddos from the elementary school. In a facility, we say a positive test with uh, at least two more within 72 hours is the definition of an outbreak. Um, and we want to jump on those right away because you want to, in those long-term care facilities, it can spread so fast and they're immunocompromised and we want to get them, you know, isolated and their antivirals if needed, if it is influenza, as soon as possible to prevent more disease. Have you seen many outbreaks this year? We've had an RSV outbreak. Um, in a facility. And, you know, that's what we were saying earlier. It's, it's not typical uh, to have RSV outbreaks in too many places, but we have had an RSV outbreak this year so far. We haven't seen any influenza outbreaks, but that can change tomorrow. So <laughs> we keep tracking it. And we do have a system where we can find potential outbreaks in long-term care facilities where we we link the address of a, a facility to the address of the patient who comes in in our lab report and we can see if they are living at a long-term care facility and then we contact the local health department and have them contact the facility to make sure that they don't need assistance or if there are additional cases or to watch for it. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I was curious how that worked in a city like Omaha or Lincoln that has multiple facilities versus if you're in a smaller community that maybe it'd be a little easier anecdotally for somebody to notice, like, a, you know, an astute clinician or even a lab person notices, hey, I'm getting a bunch of these tests all of a sudden, you know, there must be something going on. Whereas if somebody's going to maybe patients are going to six different medical facilities, it's a little harder to tie it together. It may take a little longer, but it's good that you guys can uh, can tie them together by address or something. Yep. That that was a, a great idea that we had a few years ago. And um, it's helped us a lot with COVID. And uh, we track all the respiratory diseases that way. Of course, we do take calls of the facilities actually just reporting themselves, which they are required to do as well. So when the local health department reaches out to a facility um, about an outbreak, what kind of support do they offer? Well, they can uh, give infection prevention guidance. They can also put them in touch with the uh, ICAP team, which is the uh, team that at UNMC that we has helped throughout COVID and even previous to COVID, they were helping us out with um, infection prevention in facilities. And uh, then they can help get more testing done if needed. Um, if it's a respiratory outbreak that has tested negative for flu, COVID, RSV, we can help them get further testing to determine what the source of that outbreak is. Um, and then uh, helps them fill out the outbreak report form. Because, of course, there's always a form. And there's always data <laughs> that you have to provide. So, so they help them with that. Yeah, Sarah and Dr. Ashraf and the team are very uh, happy to help with ICAP. Um, so if um, anybody has questions on things like that, we're certainly happy to help and get you pointed in the right direction. Absolutely. Although I will say long-term care is not my specialty, but I will still help as much as I can. There's lots of individuals on the ICAP team that are capable Fantastic. of helping with oh, yeah. multiple things. So, um, Robin, how are you celebrating the influenza vaccine week? Do you have plans? Well, I probably should get my kids vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm going to get my son vaccinated. My daughter's in college and it is her responsibility to do that. But if she doesn't do it within the next couple of weeks, I'm going to drag her myself. <laughs> yeah, they um really need to, to, to push uh, this out. I, I mean, until... Sarah told me I didn't realize it was National Influenza Vaccination Week. So that's that's great. I wonder if it shouldn't be a little earlier. Yeah. Um, you, you'd think if they recommend it be uh, getting your vaccine by October 31st, you have the week prior to the recommendation. But, you know, maybe it, it there's another week in October that they can't. <laughs> it might have been taken up by something else more important, yes. I guess, you know, well, who knows? The, the week before is usually IP week and ID week. So <laughs> I think there's a hand We're washing week busy. too. The, um, 
October 15th was Global Hand Washing Day. Yes. We hmm. did not do an episode. We should have. We should have. That would have yeah. that would have gone well. All right. Well, um, anything we didn't cover that you think that might be important for listeners to know about uh, influenza, surveillance, respiratory illness in general? Well, I didn't talk about our school absenteeism surveillance. Yes, yes, that's a great point. Please. Um, we we do ask uh, schools to report to us the number of kids that are absent every week. And if they are able to, if a parent has reported the reason for the illness um, or reason for the absence, to let us know what that is. And so we can track uh, potential outbreaks in schools that way. And it, it always matches up with what is happening with the other surveillance systems. And so the local health departments are notified if a school has absenteeism over 10% and they can contact that school and see if they need any assistance as well. Um, we also track school closures and classroom closures because sometimes uh, school just needs to be closed to clean and get those kids to stay home. And um, so that is, that's a surveillance system that we do lean heavily on. We track influenza-like illness, COVID-like illness, gastrointestinal illness, mental health, and other, other, <laughs> And uh, so, you know, during COVID, tracking the mental health was pretty important. You can see during a COVID surge that the absences from mental health also go up. So that's a big topic that people are trying to work on as well. Is it required for the schools to report absences? It is not required. It is encouraged, highly encouraged. Um, uh, we we the system was created when the local health departments were created and it was a way for them to for the local health departments to build relationships with the schools in their communities and so that's why we did this school absenteeism surveillance was to build that relationship um, with covid we we determined that it needed to be improved a little bit better and actually utilized to do some more surveillance it wasn't it wasn't the greatest data in the past but now it's getting a lot better yeah i was just going to ask that and i was going to ask so you said that um obviously you don't you can't make a parent disclose why a child is missing from school but obviously it provides a tremendous benefit to syndromic surveillance if you find out that there's a whole bunch of kids out who have nausea vomiting and diarrhea for example and you know you've got a noro outbreak going at your school or or something like that so um if we can encourage parents to actually just say a little bit i think it goes a long ways i don't think the school is going to broadcast that joe smith is out today with diarrhea to his colleagues but it it, it might provide benefit for others yeah um it's it's very helpful to have that information some school absenteeism systems aren't able to capture that but they do do tally marks or you know the office staff help us out with those kinds of things and just mark down you know well they have a fever they have a cough they have a you know the diarrhea and we 
try to get as much information as possible. Yeah, even a little bit goes a long ways in terming it out. But I mean, I would think even just 10% of the school being out for unknown reasons would be like, hey, we need to figure this out. Yeah, and sometimes it's due to state basketball. So yeah. you'd find that out. Senior <laughs> skip day or something. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, that was uh, that was good to uh, good to point out. I mean, and we talk about influenza. We you know we talked a little bit about kind of the the people being sick and maybe hospitalizations and deaths, but the number of days lost to work and production is significant. Uh, you know, every year with influenza. So, the best you can do is get. Get vaccinated. vaccinated. Yes. <laughs> and, and wash your hands and cover your cough. And stay at home when you're sick. Don't spread it. It is yes. not something to share. So for at least a day after your fever is gone and, and hopefully your symptoms have improved somewhat. Cough may linger, but you'll still have to, uh, you know, cover your cough and have cough etiquette. But, uh, but certainly. Hey, the... you could wear a mask. You could wear a mask. Imagine that. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And um, there are antivirals for influenza. You can talk to your physician about that. And, um, you know. Yeah, especially so. for those that have higher risk for complications from influenza. And all that information can certainly be readily available from your physician or um, on the CDC website, uh, et cetera. So uh, please, if you have concerns about that and want to see if you're a candidate, check that out or call your physician. Yeah. So Robin, do you have any questions for us since we've tortured you for the last 45 minutes? Hmm. What are you going to be for Halloween or what are you for Halloween? Ooh. Good yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, I can answer that easily because um, we don't have any children living with us anymore. Um, uh, our youngest is a senior in college. So um, we are generally bad neighbors and we turn off the lights and we go out to eat and we sit at a bar and we watch the, the you know, whatever's on TV at the bar and, and don't pass out candy. <laughs> <laughs> that is terrible, Rick. I know it is. It's so bad, isn't it? You're it's such so a party bad, but, but you can get in anywhere because everybody's, <laughs> nobody's eating out. You don't even just leave a bowl of candy on the porch. We've done that. Yeah, we've egg. done that. Yes, we have. We have done that. <laughs> but it, our, but if we're home and somebody rings the doorbell, our dog, I think, is going to have a heart attack one of these days. So it's better to not have him be uh, be freaking out with all these people at the door i got it i we just got a new dog and i'm concerned about her reaction this year it's gonna be a, it's gonna be hard i might just have to sit on the porch <laughs> there you go hopefully the weather's nice yeah and none what of that, you, that white flaky stuff that sarah was talking oh. about oh no four-letter words <laughs> um so this year <clears throat> i will be in Tuella, Utah at a haunted location. I don't know if you knew this about me, Robin. I'm a paranormal investigator on the side. Awesome. So I'm actually <laughs> leaving Thursday night and won't be back until next week. Um, but they opened this abandoned hospital as like a spook scare haunted house, full contact. So apparently 
if you're in the parking lot, you're still fair game and people can drag you back inside. Um, I'll be hiding in a corner with a black cloak on taking pictures because <laughs> I'm also a photographer. And then once the haunted house is closed down, we are staying to investigate. So it'll be a, a little bit of a dual spooky vacation. So you're dressing up as a black corner. Yes. I'm I'm gonna be a shadow. That's what I'm gonna be. A shadow. Yes. <laughs> I'm oh, sure nobody gosh. will will mind me standing in the corner when they're getting assaulted by haunted house workers. <laughs> oh. I would be freaking out. I don't do scary well, so that would be bad. <laughs> I will not be going there ever. <laughs> Great. Well, Thank you very much for joining us today and talking about uh, all things uh, epidemiology. That was great. Well, thank you for having me. Hopefully people will go get their vaccine and not spread the flu. And decide that they love data and want to uh, join us in this uh, venture of uh, hoping to keep people well. Yes, that would be very nice. We need more epidemiologists. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening in today to Dirty Drinks. You can follow us on Twitter at Dirty underscore Drinks. And don't forget to leave a comment on topics that you would like to hear on our show. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at Dirty underscore Drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.